Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Billy Smith. And I'm Alex Coos. Today I'm here with Billy Smith to talk to him about his impressive and quite frankly gorgeous army, the Dwarfs of New Galdurak for Kings of War. It is a wonderfully painted army, award-winning in fact, with a detailed backstory that we will explore along with Billy's inspiration and process. After Louis Augustus' episode covering his Black Order, Billy and I started talking about how it might be a good idea to explore other people's armies in the Kings of War community. And we thought that'd be a great show to do together, have Billy guest host it with me. And I thought a great way to introduce him to those of you who may not already know him from his previous Countercharge episodes, such as the Dwarf Army Review and various other Blue City Brawler-oriented things. I thought we'd have him on so we could talk about his amazing Dwarf Army and maybe some of his other projects that are very cool, such as his new orcs. So welcome, Billy. Yo! Glad to be back on. This is a bit of a hobby-oriented episode. So what have you been working on lately in the hobby? Well, I am actually trying to work on my work army, like you just mentioned. I wrote a, an article for Manta Games about it, but they're kind of themed after uh, Norwegian black metal. So I thought that would be kind of fun. So it's kind of a nice departure for my dwarves. And also, it's sort of kind of a speed paint. I painted 12 dudes in a day the other day, which was really nice. It normally takes me about a month and a half to paint 12 of my dwarves, working right. several hours a day it's been nice it's been refreshing because i can paint stuff quicker and it's also just like a totally different color scheme and i'm rather than like super pushing myself technically i can say okay well what can i skip and what can i do to make this look cool but not spend a million years on it so that's been a nice refreshing change yeah it's nice to kind of change up what you're doing you don't always have to be pushing yourself to greater and greater heights skill wise like finer and finer details crazier and crazier blends or bigger and bigger models like sometimes something a little quicker really focusing on like graphic details that tie the whole army together as opposed to like super fine details can be really refreshing absolutely this is definitely an experiment in how few colors can i use and get away with it and can decent basing and a reasonably clean paint scheme carry me we'll find out stay tuned (laughs) i think it's working all right yeah, they look great. I, I love everything that you send in Messenger. It looks amazing. I'm a little biased being <laughs> a three-decade-long black metal fan, but yeah, you've got to pander sometimes. I mean, wh- that's why I send it to you. Validation. Get guaranteed positive feedback. Yeah, exactly. For me lately, I've been working on, or continuing to work on my foot nights for my Cult of the Raven army. I've been playing League of Rodia and on UB quite a bit since the fall, and I'm going to stick with that and keep working on the Cult of the Raven as a League of Rodia army. So these foot nights that I kind of had on hold for a few months during the summer and fall during our lockdown in my hobby drought, I really picked them back up over Christmas and have been working pretty hard on them and redid all the yellow, and it's actually turned out the way I wanted initially, thanks to you. A little paint suggestion. So there, I'm wrapping those up. I'm just finishing 
the armor highlights this week, and then I got the little accessories, and I think I left three or four of the visors up. So I have a few faces to paint, but just to force Amateur myself movie. to paint. It was one of those, like, I should leave these up to force myself to paint faces, and now I'm like, I wish I didn't do that. We'll see. I've been watching some a lot more videos this week about painting faces and just glomming different videos together to kind of create some, like, time-saving techniques that will also kind of push my level of painting a little higher. So I think most of them are working, the ones I've tried, anyway. What I've seen of them looks really good. New yellow looks looks really solid. I think that's why when, when we were talking about you want new yellow and the theme, like that's why I painted your Secret Santa mini kind of that way that I would do it. And then so I'm, I'm glad that worked out for you. Yes. When I saw it in person, I was like, this is what I tr- was trying to do. And originally when I was working on them, I was layering different yellows, brighter and brighter yellows on top of each other. And I just started calling them like the lemon nights or the banana nights because they just started getting like too bright and fruity. It just wasn't conveying what I wanted. And that's why I kind of stopped painting them over the summer. I was like, this isn't doing what I want. Hadn't figured out how to get out of that trap yet. So when, I, when you set that mini, I was like, that is exactly what I want to achieve. I haven't didn't get it exactly the same as your halfling wizard, but it got to a point where I'm actually really happy with it. It's a little different. I really like how it's turned out. Yeah, it looks good, dude. I, I've been uh, enjoying using like a beige as a highlight color, you know, mixing it in as opposed to white or using a lighter version of a color because then you do get that kind of desaturated thing going on. And then the sepia wash, like I know, um, I think it was visibly Riley was like, why would you use sepia? But I was like, it'll make it look like more desaturated and dirty and yeah. not as good. I did a bunch of Infinity models over Christmas before I had gone back to these, and they were it's a slightly more gold yellow. So I just learned a bit about layering and highlighting yellow from that, just because I followed a couple of guides, like Angel Geraldo's guide, putting together a bunch of tips and tricks from you know the great painters in the world, like Angel Geraldo's and Billy Smith. I I'm nowhere near on the same <laughs> planet as Angel Geraldo's because that guy is a wizard. Yes. Like I watch his little his little Instagram videos and like he's just like, look, in 35 seconds, I painted this orc face and it's perfect. And I'm like, I fucking hate you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to have these guys done. Then I can start working on you know, some of the more exciting parts. Of, I still have a lot of infantry and some boring cavalry to do, but I'm going to start working on giant ravens for my wizards on Pegasi and that uh, Kingdoms of Mercia Kickstarter finally closed so I can get Aemon or my local resin guy to print up some sweet, sweet rolling castle for my battle shrine. And there's some monsters and stuff for my Aerales. So pretty excited for that. That's our little hobby update. Anything else you've been working on or just mainly the orcs these days? Yeah, I've just been trying to get these guys done because I'm hoping to be able to actually play with them. I started painting them in the summer and they're not at like a playable state yet. So I'm hoping to get them on the table here soon. Let's dive into a little bit of your backstory and your, your hobby journey that got you to hobby stardom and interview subject of Countercharge. Who are you? Where are you from? I am I guess I live currently in North Mississippi, which is, I just tell people Memphis because it's easier for them to understand. But uh, I hang out with Rob and the rest of the Blue City Brawlers. And basically, I kind of moved here a long time ago and got into Warhammer Fantasy Battles. And then uh, Rob basically force-fed me kings of war and then we started playing that and it's been fun ever since really that's awesome yeah i know i saw on your facebook that you won your first warhammer tournament seven years ago well it wasn't my first tournament but it was my they were doing like an escalation tournament at the games workshop bunker and uh, i was building a skaven army and i was like really pressuring myself to get it 
like fully painted. And so actually that's how I ended up winning was I just had everything was fully painted. And so soft scores bumped me up to, to first place. I only went two and one, but soft scores, bro. So was that your first uh, Warhammer army or did you have, were you already in the hobby at that point? That was like my first ever completed Warhammer army. Like when I was a kid, I was really into Lizardmen and Warriors of Chaos and Orcs at the same time because 12 year old mm-hmm. extension span. So I never actually had like full army. And then when I actually moved here, I didn't know anybody that played Warhammer. So I sold all my stuff, which was really dumb. And then after I got married and had like a reasonable amount of disposable income, I was like, I'm going to get back into this because this is something that I've been missing for a while. And at that time, midway through 8th edition and the Island of Blood set was out and it was just, they looked so cool. So I went with those dudes. That was my first ever completed playable wargaming army. And I've still got them. They're just nice. chilling out on a shelf over here. Ratkin for Kings of War were my first ever completed wargaming army. Fully painted, fully based. Like, similarly, like I think I started with the 4th edition Fantasy Starter and then the Chaos box set came out. So I went High Elves and Chaos and then the 40k came in and then Lizardmen and all this stuff. And then you're just like, yeah, when you're younger, you're always jumping to different projects that look cool. That when The new stuff that comes out, you're like, ooh, new shiny stuff. It's good to come back to wargaming when you're a little more patient in your later years so you can focus and get the job done. Absolutely. Actually, it's funny. My my first ever Warhammer love was the 5th edition Lizardmen, the, the kind of you know derpy, single mm-hmm. pose Saurus and like the big flamboyant looking Slon. That was what got me into it. And then, but right as I was getting interested, the G-Dub store guy, this was in Illinois forever ago, was like, oh, they're coming out with new Lizardmen. You shouldn't buy these. And I was like, oh, okay, but I like these ones. And they were like, no, buy new ones. And I was like, okay. So I ended up playing. (laughs) That's why I ended up buying into Chaos, because I was like, well... I guess I'll play something else since Lizardmen are getting redone. And then I ended up getting Lizardmen later. Whereas I think if I had just played Lizardmen from the get-go, I probably would have been a little better off. But I actually ended up getting, shout out Nathan Arnold, sold me up some super old Lizardmen stuff. So long-term project, I'll eventually make my first ever Warhammer love into a real Kings of War army. Sounds great. I always, in my head, the first like battle report I ever read, I think, was Chaos Dwarfs versus High Elves. And they had Eltharian on Griffin, and then the hero on Pegasus, and then the hero on uh, War Eagle. And I always want to go back and like get those characters and like paint them and put them in an army for Kings of War. But then I have to play elves. Then I talk myself out of it. Because you have self-respect and stuff? Yeah. I always grew up watching corny fantasy movies with my dad. We would sit around and watch Sinbad the Sailor and like just old Ray Harryhausen stuff. I ended up reading The Lord of the Rings. But I had a friend in middle school who had a copy of Dragon Strike, the classic 1993 VHS tape D&D board game thing. And that hooked me. Those were actually the first models I ever painted was like the rogue from Dragon Strike. That's another project I have on the horizon. I bought a sealed copy of it and then I have an open copy. So I'm going to paint that whole set at some point. It's great to go back to those nostalgia project either as a palette cleanser or just just for something you want to go back and like really recapture that magic yeah i think because there's only i think there's maybe 15 models in it there's almost nothing in there so i think i can really push it and spend my time and make every single one of them look as good as i can provided the sculpts aren't super terrible because a couple of them are really bad the female rogue comes to mind she is just the worst not because she's female but this the sculpt the sculpt is very poor where i started with hero quest a lot of those models you look at them they have like such a strong nostalgic draw when you look at them now but then when you really look at them compared to like what's available now 
they're like, yeah, not terrible, but they're not very good. Exactly, right? Some of them I just, I, I loved as a kid, like I always loved the, the dwarf guy and the little, the barbarian in there is pretty cool and like the mm-hmm. dragon's fun. But yeah, the couple of them are not great. Yeah, it's like it's like Battle Masters. It's like you're like, oh, I loved the idea of Battle Masters as a kid, and then you look back, you're like, these are not what I want to spend time painting right now. <laughs> so, what's your local gaming scene like in Memphis and the surrounding area? It's pretty strong. We have a new store that opened last no 2019. I don't remember. COVID has messed up my timeline, but it opened within the last year and a half or so. And it is just amazing. Rob has done an, an excellent job like fostering our community up there because he lives super close to the store. And as a result, you know, they carry a wide range of Mantic products, which is really nice. And there's tons of dudes that are always coming in to try to play. And it's also just like a really nice store. There's tons of gaming space and it's pretty cool. We've got, like I said, the, the Blue City Brawler. So we've got a, a set of about six or eight dudes that are pretty dedicated, that travel pretty frequently and go to GTEs when we're allowed to do that. And just really cool dudes. Everybody's pretty cool. We've only got like one or two weenies that, you know, we have to say, hey, stop taking that douchey list, Bowen. But other than that, it's pretty it's pretty legit. I have a good time with them. That's good. Like I think, yeah, when you get like that group of six to eight core players, that's a sign of a really healthy scene in my mind. Do you consider yourself a competitive player or more of a hobby player? I think I'm more of a hobby player. And then when I get there, I try to win and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't, you know, I know there's a lot of people that like workshop a list, you know, on blank bases, and then they figure out how to make that army and, you know, maximize its efficiency and then show up. That's all they have is that 2000 or 2300 points built. I don't really do that. I kind of just start painting stuff or maybe I go, I'm going to paint this unit and then I figure out how to make that unit work. Yeah, it's more of like you figure out what you want to use and then you figure out how best to use it. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's sad. You know, obviously you, you go to the tournament, you're trying to win. You know, I've I made the Masters team last year, so I, I sort of kind of know what I'm doing. I just I, I approach the game, I guess, from the hobby side first and then yeah. competitive gaming side second. Yeah, like when you're playing the game, you're still playing to win. Like it's still a game. You're not like showing up just to show off your models. Yeah, that would be dumb. I mean, if that's what you're into, that's cool. I just, that's not really what I'm doing. <laughs> what would be your favorite? I know there's a local, there's a Memphis tournament, the Blue City Brawl, right? Outside of that one, which would be your favorite tournament that you've been to? So I really like, obviously, I like going to Texas. Um, so really any of those Texas tournaments. I've always wanted to go to the Alamo. I just, uh, timing hasn't worked out. But favorite ones that I've been able to get to, honestly, Mountaineer was incredible. I went there in 2019, and that was one of the best tournament experiences I've ever had. Rob and I drove 16 hours from Memphis over to West Virginia, and we had an amazing time. It was just a quality, well-run event. The hotel was reasonably costed. Chris Fisher like had snacks and everything, so there was like no need to, to leave. You know, we had the extra Lord of the Rings game from Ray Shields. So just, I think at least right now, uh, I'd have to say Mountaineer is one of my favorites. Honorable mentions, obviously TNT, which I helped name, so I've got to represent. It's probably one of the best events in the Southeast. It's just really well-run. It's got an exciting wrestling theme, and you know they kind of do something different with the with the theme every year and like tim uh, tim smith has built like a big wrestling ring and a cage that you get to play in and people dress up and it's just it's all pageantry it's all silliness and it's a lot of fun and then my final favorite one i've been to all but one of them i didn't go to the 2021 uh, mostly because of covid and but also i have a brand new baby and he was five months old at the time so i didn't want to go to that tournament and leave my wife at home with him but the forge in birmingham alabama is run by Nathan Clevenger, and it is awesome. It's usually kind of, I don't want to say small, because it's usually like 25, 30 players, I think. But it's just, it's 
quality, well-run tournament, I always have a good time there. Usually, it's also kind of small points, which is fun. The third year that he ran it was the last one for second edition, so we did like a big last hurrah second edition, take 2,750 points. So I basically brought, at the time, every dwarf model I had painted, more or less. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, sometimes it's nice just to use all your toys, throw it all on the table and see what happens. The Blue City Brawl is a bit unique. I think it's a team tournament, correct? Or a a doubles tournament? Yeah, so it is a doubles tournament, and basically it's a thousand points per player. And we usually have like a not a special character in the typical way, but we have like you nominate a character in your army that basically becomes kind of a special character, and they gain inspiring and a couple other little abilities that help out with the bonus objectives. And what's cool about that is it kind of incentivizes people to take characters that you know you don't normally see, which is really fun. I remember Tim Smith one time took the herd tracker guy that nobody plays with, but it was just cool that he took him because he was able to give him inspiring and he had a little bit more utility than normal. So that was fun. The other thing that makes that tournament kind of unique is the atmosphere. It's just, it's not as competitive. It's very like, let's chill and drink beer and have a good time. Previously, it had been held at Gibney's house. He had like a big, we called it the rat house. It was like a big, used to be a photography studio for the previous owner of the home, but it was a huge space and we could fit six or seven tables in there and it was a good time. Everybody drank and just chilled and hung out. 2020, it was supposed to be at my friend's brewery out in Memphis, kind of like how uh, Jeff Swan is doing with his doubles tournament. And then, of course, COVID hit, so we had to cancel that, and then we had to cancel it for this year, just safety regulations and whatnot. But I'm hoping that 2022 will be ready to run Blue City Brawl 4 at the at the brewery, which will be exciting because, you know, beer on tap, ready to go. There's food trucks there every day. That sounds awesome. Put it on your calendars, guys. May of 2022. How did you create the background fluff for your dwarves? Where did the name come from? All right. I'm glad you asked. So dwarves were always one of those armies that I wanted to make. And when I was starting out playing Warhammer, I remember as like a very young kid, one of the dudes that worked at the G-Dub store was showing me, you know, pictures of him in a book because that was like his favorite army. And he was telling me all about, oh, dwarves don't really use magic and they have these magic runes and then there's slayers and they do this cool thing. And I was like, wow, those are really badass. But I was like, I hate metal models, so I don't want to paint them or play with them. So I, I never really got around to making a dwarf army. Well, in eighth edition, they ended up redoing the dwarves with some really high quality plastic kit. And I was like, all right, this is my time. I'm going to do it. And so I ended up building a dwarf army for 8th edition. That was my second ever completed miniatures war game army. And that was also the first army I used in Kings of War. So I didn't really use my rats a lot because at the time it wasn't really, a, like, I, I didn't have enough models to really play Ratkin the way they're supposed to be played. And also dwarves. That was my first army that I ever converted over to Kings of War. And that was where, that was when I came up with the name, the Dwarves of New Galdorak. And so basically that came from the, the Warhammer Dwarf army book. There was like a section on dwarf words and runes and stuff. And so Galdorak literally means gold stone. And so just kind of uh, my army was basically like really good miners. And they had this rich ruby deposit in their mountain, which is why they all had rubies like embedded in their army, in their armor. And I just thought it sounded cool. So it just stuck. I played with them a little while, 2016, 2017. I played uh, with the dwarves, but I was working on like a Mantic specifically built for Kings of War army. And that's when I worked on goblins. A couple years later, I knew I wanted to build a new dwarf army that was painted better because obviously my old one wasn't as good. I really wanted to just push my skills to the absolute limit, like paint every model like a character. And my plan was I was actually going to buy a Mantic Dwarf Army after I'd finished my Forces of Nature. That was my plan. And I just so happened we were at a game store in Jackson, Tennessee while doing the International Campaign Day. And they had a big box, a cardboard box behind the counter. I was like, what's all that? And he, the, the dude running the store was like, oh, it's just some dwarves. We just want 
350 bucks for it. It was easily $1,100, $1,200 worth of vintage Marauder and old Citadel metal dwarves. I was like, yeah, I'll take this right now. Like, I didn't even think about it. I just said, here's my credit card. Let's go. I ended up selling. There were two or three boxes of like the six edition plastic dudes, sold those for like 30, 40 bucks a pop or however much they were going for at the time. Sold a bunch of other random things that wouldn't really fit, like the newer, the newer the anvil. anvil. Yeah. I sold that. And basically, I ended up making all my money back from just selling extra stuff out of the box because it was, I mean, some of this stuff was extremely, extremely expensive. I had 30 or 40 of the single pose hammerers, which I didn't end up using, sold those. Great pose. So, one of my favorite dwarf minis. I, I like them too, but, you know, at the time, mm-hmm. um, and I, well, actually, I had held on to those because at the time, you know, they had the iron guard that could take the two handed weapons. So I was mm-hmm. going to use those as the iron guard with two handed and then the miners as the shield breakers. But anyway, then they did away with those. So I actually recently sold those. But I thought I'd never get a chance to buy an army like this. You know, you always look on mm-hmm. the internet and you see all these wonderful vintage minis. And you're like, oh, these are so cool, but I can't afford these because they're $10 or $12 a piece on eBay. Well, it just landed in my lap. So I took it as a sign. And so I thought, well, I'm going to I'm gonna do these guys justice. I'm never going to I'm never gonna paint them if I don't want to. I'm not going to rush them for an event ever. I'm only going to paint them when I feel like painting them. And so it's taken me, I mean, it took me about two years to get them to a playable, decent playable state with some options. But at this point now, I've probably got four or 5,000 points because I just kind of, every once in a while, I go, I'm going to paint another unit of these dudes. Circling back to New Galderock. In my head, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to use my old dwarf army anymore. I want the new one to be the modern representation of that army. And I figured this was right around the time of the edge of the abyss. So I took that opportunity to say, okay, well, they're, they're getting kicked out of their nice, fancy mountain. They're having to go on the road and find a new place to live. And eventually when they do, it's called New Galderac, taking inspiration from like Thor Ragnarok, where they said Asgard isn't a place, it's a people. You know, So my dudes, yep. you know, New Galderac, or Galderac is a, is a people, like it's those guys. Yeah, it's like it symbolizes your growth and, and as a dwarf player, as a hobbyist. 100%. That was kind of where that came from. So I already, I already sort of had the story for the old army, and then I basically just sort of said, okay, the, the new king is the son of the old one, and they moved away and, and kind of figured everything out as they had to. The old king was basically the father of the king of New Galderac, and when they left, they had to figure out new types of armor to wear and new ways to make money. And, you know, I thought about all that because obviously if they lose their mountain, which is where they're getting all of their money, they had to figure out a new way to make income for their hold. Otherwise, what are they going to do? It's an evolving process. It's kind of like the hobby in general. You come up with this idea, the seed, the original dwarf army, and then you just kind of like just grew with you and with what you found. You found your box of buried treasure and just kept going with it and like ran with it, which is awesome. But it's kind of like when you're working on anything, it's just, it, it just grows and then there's like a natural progression. I think it, you should trust yourself and go with it. You don't always have to do what you sh- think you should. If something, an opportunity presents itself or like there seems to be like a way that is open go through it just try to work your way work with that as opposed to try to like force yourself to do something you think you should yeah 100 percent. i think something else you said really stuck with me where he's like i'm gonna paint everything like it's a character and seeing your like, we're gonna post pictures up on the countercharge page on facebook and some links to your work because when you see the faces on your dwarfs that's what sticks with me whenever i see any of your units any of any anything you post it's like oh the faces because like they look real like, they have character they look alive like there's like that ruddiness to the cheek they just look like they're ready
ready to like jump off the base, which is like, I think that's something that really comes through. Like you've actually put so much time into creating a character for each, like each miniature as a character. And that really translates. I think that's awesome. It's an, an awesome way to approach like a passion project like this, whereas opposed to like, I just want to get this army done. This is like, I'm going to create something. And I think you really achieved that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent what it is. It was a passion project. I, I, I love dwarves. I already had a dwarf army, so it's not like I needed another one. I just, I wanted one that could showcase what I could try to do and that would last you know what I mean? Like years later now, the first models for this army were painted three years ago. And now I'm like, you still look pretty good. Like I could probably do better now. And some of them I do, you know, you can you can see a progression in some of the characters. But I try every time I paint one of those units, I'm doing it maybe not 100 percent to the best of my ability, but 85, 90 percent best of my ability. I'm not going to spend 20 hours on one dude. But, right. you know, I might do that for actually a character. But I wanted to make them look good and look good for a long time. Because, you know, I think when you paint an army and you really like it at the time and you come back to it later, you're like, eh, I could could have done this better eh, this looks kind of blech. i wanted these to like not make me feel that way the corners that you like cut to get something done you're like no one will notice over the course of a weekend at a gt but it's like if you come back to it you're like you know what you see it but, exactly uh, and i didn't want to cut corners so that's why like i said i, I was never going to paint them unless i wanted to and they were never going to be rushed ever the fluff has been evolving over the course of years is that something that you've worked into like other armies like do you do all of your armies kind of tie together or are they kind of like individual with respect to fluff they don't necessarily tie together and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I, whenever I paint a new army or a project, it's because I want to do something totally different. I painted my goblins because I wanted to do snow and super bright colors. And then I did my nature army because I wanted to do big, crazy, rocky bases and water effects and like teal and pink. I'm doing my orcs because I wanted to do something dark and subdued. So they all kind of have their own. I have my own reason for wanting to do them. So they don't necessarily link up, but I feel like they could all exist, coexist in the same world, I think. But no, I don't I don't specifically write them to go together or create them to go together. So they don't interact necessarily, but they all kind of exist within the Panathor of Billy's head. Yeah. And I think part of that is I would just get bored. Like if my nature army matched my, you know, I've thought about it. Like I could make a Trident Realms army, but I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know I mean, I'm done. I'm done with that army now. It's finished. I obviously could do stuff like that. I just creatively, it doesn't do anything for me. I need to do different stuff. That kind of follow, that kind of thinking follows me around my whole life. Like that's why I like teaching because every single day is a new challenge. I've done menial jobs where I'm doing the same thing over and over again and I can't, I can't handle it. So that makes sense. It's good to have that finality or at least, you know, partition part parts of the, the hobby away from each other or just parts of your life away from each other. So it's like not everything is together. So you can have this project is self-contained to some degree. So you can actually like finish it or feel like working on it isn't going to affect something else. So with the fluff of new Gal Direct, like, is it going forward still? Like, are you still thinking like, what else could you know be happening in that world? Is it something like that's mostly a finished story and then going on to something else? I think it is moving forward, especially with third edition. I feel like there was an opportunity, you know, in my head canon to, to move it forward. So I wrote some little short stories and I'm not really a, a writer of fiction. So um, reader beware, but they're on Dash 28. Um, and it basically kind of talks about what happened post Edge of the Abyss. Basically, everybody got kicked out of their mountain over in 
in the Helpy Mountains, and they kind of just made their way east across the continent to try to find a new home, and they're just wandering the wastes, you know, very, very uh, the Hobbit-esque. And um, the, the big the big story hook is basically delirious from lack of food, um, King Billion the 37th, who's leading this motley band of dwarves across the continent, um, ends up eating what turns out to be coffee beans and uh, has kind of a caffeinated, uh, delirious hallucination um, where he actually meets Blaine from the uh, Dead Zone Warpath universe and believes him to be like an avatar of the goddess Fulgria and uh, essentially becomes like a fanatical uh, devotee to Fulgria. And so that's why they change their colors from the dark green of their old home to the bright orange of New Galdorak. And then also um, in finding these these coffee beans, he actually uh, discovers basically a new cash crop for them to rebuild. Because, um, you know, at least the way that I figured was that they couldn't really find a rich enough mining area. And at this point, they found this fertile valley filled with coffee plants that are apparently magical. And so they figure out ways to monetize it and start, instead of becoming this insular you know, we have a dwarf hold, we, we do everything on our own. They're kind of like this expansive trading um, society. And so I know you and I were talking about Dragonlance off air, but there's a there's a whole trilogy of Dragonlance novels called the Dwarven Nations trilogy. And in the first one, they talk about this Dwarven society and like they make all kinds of stuff and like people come from all around to trade with them. And so I kind of took a lot of inspiration from that. So um, I imagine that these dwarves, instead of just chilling in their homes, are taking boats out of their secret valley and trading with nearby societies like Rodia and Basilea and as a result, um, you know, obviously when cultures interact with one another, they kind of bleed into each other. So that's kind of how I rationalize why their armor looks different. Why do they have puffy sleeves and feathers and, you know, more human looking armor, quote unquote? It's because right. that's what they can get a hold of, right? They don't have there's, as much raw steel to work with, so they're kind of doing with what they can. There's that kind of the models play into the fluff and the fluff plays into the models. It's kind of like feeding each other like a little bit of a, you know, circular kind of, you know. 100%. Yeah, it, it, the models do feed into, into the fluff and vice versa. And actually a really good example of that is in my old dwarf army, I had Brock Riders and they were the, the Mantic Brock Riders, and but they looked very much like Slayers from old Warhammer, right? So I mm-hmm. made a conscious de- decision that I didn't want them to look like Slayers. And so I found these very proper looking um, late medieval gothic knights, but they're dwarves riding on big chunky ponies. And I was like, these are my Brock Riders because they learned how to be knights. So they've kind of yeah. like switched their tactics around. And you know, it, it probably doesn't make the most sense that they're full plated, but they're defense four i just tell people they can't see very well out of their helmets and so that's why they're defense four yeah it was like with their expansive entrepreneurial spirit they've started to like adopt different tactics different you know materials different i think it's really like paint what but also have it into the story of what you're building like the, the you know your fluff and all that stuff and like really getting you invested in your project where you can have like it doesn't always have to just be like this you're making a story and you're telling a story it's like what you want to do on the painting table and the hobby table can play into how you want to tell your story yeah and uh kind of going off of you know this switch uh after the sorry kind of following the edge of the abyss you know that pushed my story along um third edition helped push it along because when the new severi egalax came out I, i've started using using my King Billion model as Sveri Egalax almost exclusively just because I really like the model in the game but also um, in my brain he's becoming more and more and more fanatical as he's more um, he's more addicted to caffeine he's more yeah. getting getting kind of that, that dwarf greed again where you know at for a while he was pretty humble because you know obviously he had been kicked out of his house and he was trying to figure it out but he's, he's seeing you know he's seeing the gold and <laughs> he's getting greedy again you know kind of like that old dwarf trope like in The Hobbit when, when Thorin gets 
gets back to the Lonely Mountain. He he remember you know he finds the Ar- the Harkenstone and all that kind of stuff. Yep. But uh, sh- shotgunning yep. monsters and getting on his giant Brock and getting all hopped up <laughs> on caffeine. Yeah, exactly. And so you know it kind of makes sense in that way. And then the other thing that um, I feel like is sort of pushing it forward is um, Armada obviously just came out. And so I always had the idea that my army was using boats for transportation because it's way more efficient for trade going through mountains. And obviously if they're in a valley, there's I've written it in there's like a fjord and a uh, a river system that goes through here. So they obviously use boats in order to contact Basilea and others. So um, they need to have a navy to protect their trade assets. And so Armada kind of also plays into that as well. It's kind of kind of neat. I, I'm I'm enjoying that aspect. And then um, I, I typically played them as free dwarves, which was a new development in third, right? Um, but what's cool is obviously this society is growing. They're gathering more funds and more engineers and more money, and they're interacting with all these different cultures. So what's stopping me from running them as Imperial Dwarves? From them yeah. either relearning how to do those things or acquiring the funds or the the means to make that stuff again. Yeah, that's awesome. It gives you, yeah, cause like as they become a more established society with more money and more fun, you know, more industry and infrastructure, like that's what separates, well, partly what separates Imperial Dwarves from Free Dwarves, right? Yeah. So, I mean, by definition, right, they're Free Dwarves. They're not part of God empire yeah. but individually they could build enough resources to um to play as imperial dwarves so to speak right so we were I talking really about like, like oh go ahead i was gonna say i just really like rangers so free dwarves all the way yeah absolutely they're the cool dwarves so you talked about how like your dwarves each army is kind of in a you know a loose silo in your head fluff wise um but uh trying to allude to a, a potential or a cameo of your character king billiam the 37th uh, in uh some of the official mantic fluff <laughs> yeah um so basically um obviously winged hussar all the authors were reaching out and saying like hey if you want a character from your army to be featured not featured but mentioned in a novel you know let us know and we'll we'll, we'll fit it in there so obviously in um the first novel which i'm forgetting the name of now Draft secrets and no that's ben's novel i remember oh, that oh, oh, uh, the first one st- okay sorry in the first novel steps to deliverance by mark barber there's a reference to Skullface, uh, which is kenneth heisler's uh, skull Skullfers, which is super cool. Uh, and so Ben, uh, Ben Stoddard, he wrote a book called uh, Drowned Secrets, which is actually really awesome, by the way. You should check it out. Um, there is a there's a line in there where he mentions that story that I talked about about King Billiam eating the the beans and basically you know kind of going nuts and seeing God or whatever. So uh, that's really fun. And that that was just really cool when I got the book in the mail and I was able to show people like, look, I made this up. This is real. Like uh, so, so so that was really cool to have my character that I made up become canon officially kind of yeah, i think that's a really great thing about like having a company that mantic's pretty small generally so like it's nice that, that they're so tied to the community and that we like involve us in their product and so we're you know they're involved making the product and they're involved with us so they're involving us with making the product the kind of inclusive relationship is really nice to see in a company these days absolutely it just it feels like we're a part of it more so than just we're fans of it and we buy stuff yeah we're not just being con- they're not just consuming what they give us it's like here let's be part of something together in the grand scheme of things we talked about like a little bit about how you draw on color or like model inspiration uh, is there anything else that inspires you for building your armies kind of the same thing that everybody always says right like i'm inspired yeah. by movies um you know i'll read books and i get ideas about stuff or i'll watch a tv show and i'll say oh i want to do this cool thing um, and another big thing honestly is seeing other people's armies and other creative cool things that other people do and so that always makes me want to work and make cool stuff also right so, um, yeah, i think you're going to tournaments like i think is one like that's one of the coolest things when you go to a tournament like it's the competitive aspect and it's the social aspect but like going and seeing a room of like 20 or 30 
armies with people's display boards and all the different basing and how people do different things it's like it's awesome it's so it, it's totally inspiring because you it's you know 30 different people's perspective on how to make something cool absolutely and like i got this same feeling you know um I haven't really played music in a while, but like I've been in bands for extended periods of time. And like me and the guys in the bands would go to other shows, you know, or travel out of town to see bigger bands. And then like the whole time we were there, we would just be like, dude, can't wait till we get home so we can jam because I got this cool idea. So, I mean, it's just I think seeing other people make stuff makes you want to make stuff. That kind of covers off most of your fluff, you know, process, if that's the right word for it, but just how how it evolved for your dwarf army. Um, You mentioned like getting these these metal, this box of metal miniatures, like these classic marauder characterful force was like part of the inspiration but like you have a pretty strong like color story with these guys um so what was the main driving force behind that and what is the color story for our listeners all right so um if you're familiar with whataburger um just put a dwarf on it that's kind of where we're at um but honestly the the one of the main things that inspires me to paint an army is color um which sounds really bizarre because you would think you would want to like pick the models first and then kind of pick colors that go with it but i usually have an idea for like i want to paint an army that's orange and white and so i had this idea for years i mean probably since 2016 or 2017 i was like i'm gonna do an army that's orange and white one day or someone should do one, right? And it just so happened that these models fell into my lap, and that's that's where that came from. Um, the same sort of thing happened with my nature army. I was like, I want to do teal. Hold and on a sec. Hold on a sec. You're cutting in and out a little bit. Oh, that's weird. During that, I just want to make sure we're getting this because it's good. And then cause I, was, I was missing like every third word. Ooh, that's weird. Yeah. Okay. Start again from uh, Whataburger. <laughs> or sorry about that. No, you're fine. I'm sorry that it might have been mine. I just want to make sure that we're we are actually getting it. Yeah. So um, for me. A bigger thing, usually, instead of models, is color. I think a lot about color schemes all the time. I'm constantly brainstorming, how could I paint these two colors or this particular color? What would I do if I was painting this color? And so oftentimes, I'll have color schemes in mind for a really long time before I even get around to painting it on an army. So um, I've had an idea for an orange and white, you know, people joke, Whataburger-themed army for for forever, probably since 2016 or 17. I remember talking to Dan Kamek on the way to um, to Manticon 2016. 17, uh, which is a t- tournament that doesn't exist anymore. But uh, I was like, man, I just something needs to be painted orange and white. Someone needs to do this. And he was like, okay, whatever. Um, anyway, years later, obviously, I found the models to match it. But I kind of do that a lot. Um, the idea for my nature army, I wanted to do teal and pink with like non-metallic gold. I was like, I'm going to do that on something. Um, I had about four or five different army ideas that I could do it on. Um, at one time, it was going to be elves. Uh, um, it ended up being forced to nature. And then same thing with my uh, with my orcs that I'm working on now. I had the idea that I wanted to do this desaturated black metal theme. I was like, which army does it go with? Can I do it with ogres or orcs or varinger? Um, and so really for me, usually it's color first is the first thing that um, that I think about as far as inspiration goes. That's very cool because like, everyone's process is different. So like, you know, like for me, usually it's like I find cool looking models or like a general like theme that I want to go with and then follow that. But that the color story kind of driving force is, I don't know, that's unique to me. So I think for more painting it's obvious, I think it's a bit strange bit more of a inspiration or a bit more of a sorry that was dumb <laughs> but yeah so wow just totally lost my train of thought you were saying i'm really smart and unique for thinking yeah. of color first yeah so like coming at the problem of army theme from that kind of perspective is interesting because a lot of people will usually pick a play style or pick a line of miniatures and be like i'm doing it this way and like they'll pick box art or i know one it's one of the guys in our local club he like he's like i just pick like country's flags and i paint things based on that and it's 
to kind of get like the color scheme down after the fact. But I think it just shows you like there's no one way to solve the problem. It's like you can do it however you feel motivated to do. Like if you have like I, for like my Call of the Raven, I'm like I always wanted a black and yellow knightly armor ar- army ever since like fifth edition Bretonians, and it just like never I didn't play for ten years, but it, you know so that put it off for a while. But yeah, like you kind of have that thing brewing in the back of your head waiting to happen, and then when when the opportunity presents itself, it just like happens. Yeah, I think you did a really great job with the white and orange because it doesn't like you say Whataburger and then for me I'm in Canada so we don't have that but my brain immediately goes to creamsicles and you're just like but it doesn't you've made the the color feel interesting and it's kind of the same thing you you did with the yellow on the halfling sorcerer you sent me it's like you kind of rooted it in like like an earth tone or like you know it's not as it's bright without being like fluorescent so it's like it has, you know, I was saying like with the yellow, it's like it's classy yellow. It's not cheesy yellow or cheesy orange. It's like it actually has some depth and character to it. So you feel like it matches dwarves. Like you think white and orange, you don't think dwarves really. You think, you know, something doesn't have the same seriousness. But like the way you've done it is really interesting because it, it creates this bright contrast, but it doesn't take away from the seriousness of the, like the dwarf aesthetic. Yeah, thank you. I, I definitely, that was pretty intentional, right? I, I like brightly colored armies. But I'm starting to I'm starting to experiment more with desaturating colors, and we talked about that a little bit before we started. But that orange specifically, I started with like a, a base orange thing. I used an orange shade, and then I highlighted up with the base orange, which is fairly desaturated, and then with a uh, like a bone color. So really, the final highlight is like an off white, and I intentionally wanted to contrast the the orange with like the bright grassy green bases, and also the cool white of their uniforms. And also, I have a little bit of bright obnoxious neon or not neon bright obnoxious green in there for like some just pop color on a couple random models but i i intentionally chose a color scheme that i had never ever seen on dwarves before you know usually you think dwarves are like oh they're gonna have dark armor and they'll either have blue clothes or red clothes or green clothes or whatever sometimes purple you know every once in a while but i wanted to do something completely off the wall that no one had ever seen before. And I try to do that most of the time with any army anyway, just because I want to be unique. But yeah, I, I definitely wanted to make an army that was that was bright, that was eye-catching, but not like, like you said, not neon, not obnoxious, that doesn't go against the, you know, quote-unquote serious dwarf aesthetic, right? Um, you know, these dudes are gruff, grumpy, drunken, you know, kind of jerks, but they, you know, they're wearing orange because they're they're showing their devotion to Fulgria, not because they're, you know, they're out there uh, doing road maintenance or something. They're neon Mm-hmm. vests on right yeah exactly i think and you mentioned like the the grumpiness like those old marauder and old school gw doors they have so much character in their faces and their in their demeanor like the way their poses and stuff like that i think that's got to be like a huge motivator too like just to be able to get the most out of those miniatures they're, they're a lot of fun i can always go back and paint more of them and i never feel like oh another one of these guys because it's just they they are so full of character and you know going from the different unit to unit you know i just the the last two units i painted were the the old metal uh miners and they're Those just great deli- yeah they're just delightful i mean they have a lot of similarity to like the the rangers or whatever for example but they have just enough differences to keep it fresh and like the, the bits are different you know and it's just they're just so delightful something about dwarves they're just they're fun to paint and i've bought dwarves from a gazillion different ranges now i've painted
painted uh, Mantic ones. Obviously, I've painted. I have another company that I really like, Northumbrian Tin Soldier. They do a lot of female dwarves, so I buy a lot of those. And they're just, I don't know, there's something infinitely charming about them that I just can't get away from. Yeah, we all have like that, that fantasy like aesthetic that we are drawn to. They're just like that's just that's a jam. Like that just like, hits the right note, and you're just like that's just what you like. You're, you just want to keep going back to. That's awesome when you can find it and just like you get the line of miniatures that just really scratches that itch. Absolutely. And like I'm actually a big fan of the Mantic Dwarf range, but I think that had I done this color scheme the way that I did it on that range, I don't think it would have the same gravitas as they do the way as they do now. If that yeah. makes sense. Well, that's like, the thing. Like your your paint scheme, the emotions you want to evoke from the person looking at the army. Like you, you you're trying to get a response like when you get down to it like so you, you you're, the paint and the miniatures has to like work together to get that response yeah i agree with that 100 i think the last thing i kind of wanted to do with the army was sort of be like you know everybody remembers goblin green bases and and grass field flock and everything right uh, this was kind of my like love letter to that era mm-hmm. of obviously i didn't do the goblin green bases but i did you know the grassy field part of that was because a i wanted to contrast the orange because i knew the orange was going to be very very prominent um, and I wanted to kind of tone that back a little bit. But the other thing was to harken back to, quote unquote, the good old days of miniatures where everything was on. Everything was on grassy bases and everything was kind of bright and in your face. Um, but I wanted to bring like a modern sensibility to that where, yeah, it's bright, but it's not hurting your eyeballs. And like, yeah, it's green bases, but they're not solid goblin green with, you know, some yellow dry brush. That was definitely a very conscious thing that I did. And I don't I don't know if I actually mentioned it earlier or not, but the fact that I put them on gr- like grassy bases was also me trying not to do the the tropey typical dwarf thing which is totally fine uh, i don't have any problems with it it's just i didn't want to do that especially since my first dwarf army was on the gray dwarf hold bases you know where you have tiles or, or broken stones and it's all just kind of it's like everybody does that you know yeah i wanted to, to branch out a little bit yeah like everyone does it because it, it looks cool and like you know dwarves you know from mountains and mines and there's like the stone again like plays into that seriousness of the dwarf aesthetic i think your basing for this army really drives home the point that you can do classic things like slight variations of the classics and get really cool results like yeah goblin green sunburst yellow dry brush on on sand is kind of like ingrained into certain generations of the gaming public's mind but you can take those principles and like expand upon them like especially with kings of war with the multi-basing the opportunities are insane but you could really just take that basic premise and use it as a bit of a constraint but still go further with it and then it kind of just create to create more drama and more interest than just like you know boring basic and i and i think that that these are like vintage old school minis a majority of them um i think people are going to see them and go oh i remember those and then like so it'll kind of give you that nostalgia but again through that modern i don't want to say refined lens because i don't think i'm better necessarily than anybody but just through through a modern mini painting lens you know yeah absolutely i think especially when you have smaller miniatures like dwarves that have a lot of character like those older ones you don't want the basing to distract from that like i think some some armies really play into huge dramatic bases but like sometimes you just need to do like a subtle approach to really bring out the best in the unit but subtle doesn't have to mean like boring or you know poorly done yeah absolutely awesome so in painting it in hobby in general like what really to to be someone who's put you know hundreds maybe thousands of hours into painting armies five thousand points of metal dwarves 
dwarves plus other things like what draws you to, to do that like what draws you to painting and hobby like the modeling aspect of the hobby like what drives you for that the number one reason is it is relaxing to me i come back here into my little hobby room i've got my collectibles on my books you know my dog comes and sit by me i pour myself a drink or a cup of coffee and i just zen out and uh, I, it's just me and a miniature sometimes i put on some weird finished dungeon synth music sometimes i get on after dark and talk to friends but it's just a way for me to unwind and unravel and decompress and decompartmentalize my brain from the work day or from life stresses or from a newborn baby screaming at me all day it just relaxes me it, it brings me peace and joy and centers me so that's 100 percent the number one driving force there is it just makes me feel good that's awesome we should uh should all strive to have something like that in our lives like bring Absolutely. a little bit of peace and zen to our, our day i know that when i if i can like consistently get you know an hour of painting in a day like stuff like my phone to like this i'm not interested in like trying to distract myself with my phone or for me as well like i think it's just like a good peaceful time yeah and i i think i mean i i'm all i'm a believer that hobbies are incredibly important to your mental health um you know i, I there are a lot of jokes and people talking with the beginning of the coronavirus that like oh us mini painters have got plenty of stuff to do but i mean there's there's truth to that like i think the reason why a lot of us probably and i can't speak for everybody but i can say that you know a lot of us probably handled the pandemic and lockdowns a little bit more than some other people's because i don't require other people to get uh enjoyment or that same relaxation so it's been you know I, at this point i'm done with it right but you know for the first few months it was it was pretty relaxing i was like yeah. oh okay i can i can just do this thing that i really like but more <laughs> so, yeah exactly it's like we we had inbuilt coping mechanisms like we already trained ourselves to deal with it um, to some degree yeah so, absolutely and you know people are always you know my students at school don't understand that i sit at home and paint toy soldiers i mean i've told them i've showed them pictures i've shown them my trophies and stuff i'm like look at what i won but they're like why don't you play video games i'm like well you know it's everybody likes different things um and for me the thing that brings me joy and brings me peace is painting miniatures you know my wife really likes playing distracting games on her phone or she likes grindy dungeon crawler games on the playstation or animal crossing right you know my mom likes her plants you know so it's just everybody has to have a thing that that makes them feel that way and i think that is a huge huge um benefit to our just overall mental health absolutely i think having something that you work at that is not tied to your you know living obviously it is it is a privilege to be able to do that like to have the time and the and the resources to be able to you know have hobbies like not everyone can spend as much time as everyone else but you know being able to set aside that time and effort on something that you know your income isn't tied to or you know other people's well-being isn't tied to it's effort that isn't stressful or it should be like it's a different kind of of effort which i think yeah is lacking because like when you're working your job or you know you're, you're taking care of your family like that's it's important there are important things to do but they're, they're adding stress so it's like if you can work on and the, the effort you put in isn't the same as like when you put your effort into a hobby it's like it's almost like you're pouring some of that stress out you're absolutely correct there were there's there's been times where uh i've just been adjusting to fatherhood and also returning to work and everything and i've just been so exhausted that i go to bed without doing my hobby and it makes me feel like almost physically ill because i'm like i haven't gotten to do this de-stressor and i can feel it building up and then you know fortunately my my wife is super amazing and like if i'm like look i need i need to go zen out for a little bit she's like okay cool and we take turns like tonight you know she was she's very stressed out with work so i took a lot of the baby load and you know obviously not everybody has has that kind of relationship either but i think that's that's very important um between partners to understand when you need that time to yourself and um i'm i'm just i'm very fortunate and very grateful that i do have a partner that that understands that so yeah it's good especially like again in times where we've in the last year most of us has probably spent a greater amount of time proportion of 
our time in close proximity to our families. And that alone time is only more is, is more important in those situations. Absolutely. It helps that my wife's super antisocial. So she's just like, I need you to go away from me for a little while. I'm like, all right, bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I have no interest in home shows. So if she wants to watch those for a couple hours, I can paint for as long as I want. Yeah. Um, and that's cool. You know, and, and I know like you're the same way, right? Like we will watch, you'll watch TV with your spouse. Um, like we do the same thing. You know, we have shows we watch together, but then I'm like, all right, cool. Well, you're going to watch this thing. I'm going to go do this other thing. Or you're going to play Animal Crossing. I'm going to go do this. So it's just, it's just cool. I think that's healthy. And I think a lot of people need that. Yes, and, I, and I think when you don't have hobbies, which is a lot of times when I hear people, this is turning into a relationship advice podcast. When I hear a lot of people talk about um, or read posts about arguments with spouses, I'm like, find something to do. <laughs> Like, yeah. do, do something you enjoy. Like, if they're doing this thing that they enjoy, you do something else. Um, yeah, it's weird. Like, every once in a while, you see, I don't know, veiled or overt bitterness at someone doing something they enjoy. Like, they have their partner doing something they enjoy. And you're like, well, why don't you have something you enjoy? And I, obviously, there's uh, there's a limit, right? You know, if I spent 12 hours a day painting miniatures and I didn't help pick up, clean up our house or take care of our baby or do anything like that, that'd probably be not a good idea. But, you know, if, you know, one person is playing video games or jogging or whatever cool thing that they like to do, maybe find something to do also that way yeah. you have your own thing yeah it's all about balance with yourself and your relationships and you know you obviously not everyone's job lets them paint six hours a day but some people can you know it's sometimes people who work shift have more shift work can do like chunks of hobby you know in larger sections like some night some days of the week some days they can't do any or you know some days or some weeks you're preparing for a tournament and you're like i need to cash in some uh relationship karma and paint for six <laughs> hours a day or 12 hours a day for the next two weeks but you know with the understanding that there will be weeks when you do not do that. 100%. Um, so do you have a background in art or is, is this kind of like always been like a bit of a side thing for you? So as a kid, I've always been kind of creative. Like I remember uh, I made like a diorama of like Kirby's Dreamland, like one of the levels in Kirby's Dreamland out of like construction paper as a kid. I've always been into like drawing and, and doodling and comics and fantasy art and just movies and just all that stuff. I've always been interested in it, but never like as a career um so like i was never particularly interested in like going to art school or doing anything like that um so short answer no but you know uh, i've always kind of doodled or um i've played a lot of music i did a lot more of that and again that was more as a hobby than as than as a serious monetary endeavor or anything i just you know i like to make stuff and i think just in different parts of my life i've been making different things you know as a kid it was construction paper and markers as a uh, junior high school student it was miniatures and then as a you know high school college person it was music and now as a 30 something year old man it's miniatures again so that's good like you always have had always had that outlet or you know it's always the creative aspect has always been some part of your life in some way i think we're talking before it's it's important i think it's uh it's a good way to live a balanced life to have that yeah absolutely with respect to like you were talking about your main inspirations or driving forces or driving force for your projects is like a color story or combination is there like a common source for these color stories or is it just it come from wherever or do you kind of like go back to a certain well of ideas i don't know basically i kind of like you know there's players talk to and they talk about how they're always in their brain workshopping lists and they're thinking about oh, i could take this unit and this unit and min max this or, or work this around um or think about their armies in terms of numbers and stats and and or even just miniatures um i have more like a mood board sort of thought process so um you know i'll see stuff in nature or in a movie or a cool piece of artwork or someone else's army or maybe I play a board game that's 
really cool or I read a comic or whatever. And slowly but surely in my brain, I, I gather together these mental images. Maybe it's, um, I'll use my, my orc army as an example because that's my current project. But, you know, I had this idea. I was like, I want to bring this like dark fantasy black metal aesthetic to miniatures because like I hadn't really seen that done before. So that's a draw for me. But also it's a unique challenge. And there's just, there's a lot of, there's a very strong aesthetic associated with that type of music. You know, everything's black, lots of monochrome, lots of uh, forest imagery, lots of snow, lots of death and devils and cool stuff. And so I just kind of like make this mood board in my brain. If I see a band that has a cool album cover, I put that away. Um, if I see a particular scene in nature or, or, or a particular image, it just kind of like builds its own mental mood board. And then eventually, at some point, it fills up. I make a decision about an army, about miniatures, and then it just kind of comes to life. Sounds really weird, but I, I haven't really heard anybody else talk about making miniatures that way. But that's kind of where my brain goes. With yeah, that. it's kind of kind of like how like we all collect far too many miniatures. We're like all, everyone, well, most of us end up just buying stuff that's cool. As we we all you know we over we buy it with purpose for specific armies. But I think we, we all accumulate cool stuff just because it's cool. And it's like you have no specific plan for it. But you're like that giant's awesome. I don't have any idea what army it's going to be in, but it looks awesome, so I'm going to get it. Um, I have a drawer or a couple totes of Mercia monsters because I just they're cool and they're on sale. So I'm like, I'll find a way to use them eventually. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it's kind of like a color version of that. You just collect these ideas until you have like a critical mass to like implement it. Yeah, that's a very succinct way of wrapping up that rambling mess that I just made. It's team team effort. We're working together on this. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's actually really cool because like when you say it, I'm like. Yeah, I think that's really an interesting way to approach a project. Was like, I want it to look like this on a very macro level, as opposed to you know thinking specifically how you want to play on the tabletop or which specific miniatures you want to use. It's like this is visually how I want it to make the viewer feel. Yeah, almost like I want there to be like a certain feeling when I see it, you know, or when I think about it, and then so like that's the that's the first step of the flowchart, and then it's like okay, well let me find models that make sense for that, and then it's like okay, well now how do I make those models work in the game just yeah. kind of usually how my brain works that's awesome i really like that approach in the grand scheme of things like we've talked a lot about your projects which, which is why you're here and because they're interesting um but do you think what, what would be some of the coolest projects that you've seen like in your gaming travels like what are like some of the things that really stand out as like exemplars of like that theme idea that we're discussing yeah so I think this is a very huge question, and obviously I can't sit here and talk all day about every single person's army that that I've seen. I made I made a list of a couple that I think are are pretty important to me at least right now, and I don't want to just show for the podcast. But honestly, Rob's halfling kingdoms of halfmen army he's been working on for a little while is just it's really cool. I think, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like he's in kind of a similar boat, right? This is a, a very much a passion project for him. He's doing a very similar thing with colors where he is using bright fun colors but in a more based in reality sort of way so um if you haven't seen them yet he has like a blue and an orange which again typically pretty bright crazy colors but he's done them in a way that makes sense in like a world that people would actually wear those colors yeah like for, as a photographer like when i see your army and his army i'm like they are in the same light like they're, yeah. like they're in the same part of the world at the same time of day kind of thing. Like they, like the light color, the way they look, like they look like they're in the same space. It's very cool. 
And maybe that's why I like it, because they kind of match that. I don't know. Maybe there's a subconscious thing there. But I, that's one that I'm really I'm really big on right now. And uh, I'm sure he'll listen to this and be like, ho, ho, ho. I'm just a big fan of that. And, and, you know, he'll frequently be like, oh, I'm working on this, or I converted this model, or look at this thing that I'm doing for this. I just, I've really liked seeing that project come together. And I guess I can speak to that one a little bit more, because I've seen it in person, and I've seen a lot of work in progresses, and I've played against it a few times. So that's a really big one. Another thing that I kind of wrote down to talk about is I feel like there's kind of a paint meta and I've talked about this a little bit with with different people. It felt like um, as we were coming over from Warhammer, people just kind of had armies. You just painted whatever. And then there's just, there started this like almost paint meta of let's paint really bright armies. And I had this thought in my head as well that oh, if I paint an army that's really bright, it'll catch people's eye and then they'll look at it and then I'll win paint awards. That That's what I thought about. I, I did my, my goblin army, which was fairly bright, but then I went next level technicolor nonsense with my forces of nature army there's big buff unicorns and like pink unicorns flying around and flying narwhals and bright teal water elementals and i mean it was if it wasn't so masterfully done it would be an assault <laughs> on your eyeballs all right <laughs> but you know i i feel like there was this this bright color paint meta and now like everybody's kind of on that kick everybody's like oh we'll all do bright colors and so now i'm like i'm gonna paint my my darker orc army. So I've also really enjoyed seeing like just the different ways that people approach how they want to paint minis like to a high standard. Um, so like I know Brinton won Alamo a couple years ago with his undead army, which was like super desaturated and subdued, but just really masterfully done. So I don't know. I, I like seeing how people like change and adapt to what people want to see or to techniques that are that they're learning. I don't know. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like that. It's like the fashion pendulum, right? It's like you know, tight pants, loose pants, whatever. I don't know. I wear the same <laughs> black T-shirts and Levi's every day. But it's like there's always that swing back and forth, and more and more people end up doing that. And then you're like, then you need to get, do something different to get attention. So that kind of goes back the other way. So it's like desaturated, super saturated, high contrast, low contrast. Although I don't know if low contrast. Well, someone's gonna make low contrast work. But like contrast has been like I've noticed it's like just you know, OSL and like just all this stuff where it's like super crazy bright with super dark parts you know it's very popular but i hear you it's like it's about sometimes if you want to go for awards like you have to think about the meta it's the same as like if you're building a list it's like you have to know what you're going to be up against to know what's going to work absolutely and and like i know jeremy talked about on an episode recently that you know you're, you're not quote unquote being graded on your display board but you sort of are it's kind of like that right depending on who your paint judge is right because there's there's obviously there's on one end of the spectrum, there's the Ryan Smith, who literally will not consider your display board as part of it and is really good at being an objective observer of just your miniature's paint. Then, you know, you go to the polar opposite end of that spectrum and there's dudes that are just like, that looks dope and, and are a little bit, I'm not saying bad, but maybe less cognizant of the fact that they're being affected by things like display boards or bright colors or what have you. And as a result, maybe a brighter army might win out over a more an equally well-painted or even a better-painted, desaturated kind of army. So in that vein, what do you think, other than your own, what's your favorite army out there that you've seen in person? Uh, like ever? Yeah. Um, Not to put you on the spot, but to yeah. put you on the spot. But to put you on the spot, I really do like Ryan Smith's. Uh, he did like that Ninja Goblin army for Blue City Brawl, which was a lot of fun. Um, it was very, it was like bright and colorful. It was like a real good example of Ryan's style. And like what I like about that army too is he's a big fan of confrontation minis, and mm -hmm. it was all confrontation minis. And oh, so you those see, goblins are insane. I love those. Oh, they're they're incredible. And so like kind of like me with these dwarves, where there's just like it's a passion project thing. You can tell 
he loved painting those and he mm-hmm. really enjoyed them. That's that's pretty far up there. Anything Austin Kerrigan paints is stunningly gorgeous. Um, what I like about Austin is he also approaches mini painting from a different way. Whereas like I focus a lot on like like I said, I start with color. So like for me, the most important part of my army is a unifying color scheme that matches and ties everybody together. And I and I don't want again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but from talking to him and seeing what he does, he kind of like approaches each model as its own project, and as a result, does like amazing gorgeous things with color and just his paint quality so it's really interesting to see his work as well and we had the the pleasure of teaming up for blue city brawl um the last one so that was really fun to work directly with him we ironically did not win best painted which was pretty hilarious but uh (laughs) mind-boggling the fix is in Uh, folks it was um it was a lot of fun to just kind of like work with him on because like like i said we we fundamentally we think about painting armies completely differently so i was like all right let's try to make this match and like these colors and he's like no stop putting me in a box i'm gonna do what i fucking want <laughs> it was it was really fun i i liked i liked that a lot I, austin is also just a genuinely wonderful human being so so we got a couple of color questions so what's one project that you started and regret having never finished project that i started and regret never finishing i mean you could say that i haven't finished my forces of nature army i've got three or four units that I haven't done um, that I would like to do eventually. I think that that might be it because it is a project that I'm very fond of. I like the look of. I, I like the army a bunch. I just, I can't bring myself to paint anymore for that army. So I think I'm going to go with that. So you're working on your orcs. You're hoping to get those guys done relatively soon-ish in uh, the grand scheme of things. Do you have anything waiting in the wings or like something that's just like you have that you're just like, I can't wait to paint this? Yes. So I'm actually a really big fan of the Mantic Orc range, just the whole thing. Um, I think the plastics are decent, um, especially given their age. Um, all the metals are really delightful. One mini that I'm super jazzed to paint for that army, well, I'll say two. One of them is the... Crudger on Winged Slasher, because it is just a super cool model. I have a really exciting conversion. that I'm, It's a pretty minor conversion, but it's going to be ridiculous, and I'm excited about it. So I really want to do that. I'm also really excited about... Um, I have this plan to make a Fight Wagon Legion, and um, I have some parts 3D printed for it already, and basically I'm going to be making a, mo- a rolling stage and there's going to be a band on it playing music and uh mantic actually is putting out one of the heroes for or villains rather for the league of infamy is an orc playing like a flying v guitar and i'm like yep <laughs> so i backed made for yeah <laughs> they did this the resin set it was like him and three or four other characters i backed it just for that and so i'm supposed to get that later this year i think i'm just I was like, that's perfect. So that that is one thing that I'm excited to do. I, I'm still waffling in my brain how I'm going to make it all work on the base, and if if I'm going to integrate like a, a Bluetooth speaker into the into the unit or not. But that that is one thing that I'm really excited about painting is that Legion. And honorable awesome. mention to my giant because I really like the Mantic Giant, and I want to paint one for my Black Metal Orcs with like big spiky bracelets and face paint and stuff. I can't wait to see this army finish. Like it speaks to me on so many levels. <laughs> I'm just I'm excited about it and and like what's fun about the orc army is you know my dwarf army is passion project I'm painting it very slowly I normally would batch paint four dudes at a time and they would take me you know if I was painting a night uh, an hour or two a day maybe a couple weeks I painted 12 orcs on Monday <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 a different experience and it 
feels really satisfying to, especially after painting my dwarf army and my nature army and my goblin army, which were just pushing me to the limit um, each time. It's really nice to just go, cool, these are done. They look okay. And so I'm, I'm using a lot of techniques and a lot of color choices and a lot of just products that make them look good, deceptively good, I think, more so than you would think. Um, and Stealth then, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the other thing is... Uh, I'm still doing the basing up to my pretty decent quality because I don't think that takes very long. And I'm a firm believer that quality basing can take you a really, really, really long way as far as making your army look good. They really tie an army together. Really tie the army together. So you mentioned um, even with your speed painting approach to your orcs, um, you're, you're maintaining your level of quality with your unit bases. And you're talking about how mindful you were with creating the basis for your or uh, for your dwarf army so what's your favorite part about unit basing and like what's your general approach or do you have a general approach yeah this is a really good question so my favorite part is that like like we said earlier it, it really ties a unit together it's also a really quick thing to get done you know like if you're if you're strapped for time and you only have 20 30 minutes to hobby you can paint some bases pretty quickly another thing i really like about it is it's pretty easy to make bases look really good with craft paints and a tiny bit of effort. My general approach, if you want to read in more detail, I'm sure we can link it in the show notes, but I did a series of articles on Dash 28 about how I go about um, building bases. And the general approach is I get whatever MDF that I'm building it out of, and I add a bunch of stuff, usually sheets of cork, um, pine bark, twigs, logs, uh, bits of ruins, whatever other bits need to go on there. And I fill it in with, um, you could use texture paint, it just costs more, but I just mix like sand and glue and a little water together, or sometimes ballast or whatever different textures. And I just kind of spread that into all the cracks and crevices and sort of blend all those pieces together. And then I paint it. And uh, what works really well is I've used this basic method for the last, since my goblin army basically, but you can't tell because they all look so vastly different. Um, my goblin army is completely covered in snow. The nature army is has like a lot of pink flowers on it, so it's similar to the dwarf army, but different. Dwarves, obviously, you'll see soon in the pictures because there's grassy green, and I've I've added the dwarf like ruin bits in there to kind of break it up. And then, of course, the, the, uh, the orcs are going to be kind of on this dark, spooky half snowy forest yeah i've kind of used the same basic technique but done lots of different stuff with them yeah i think one thing i noticed when i was starting out with my ratkin like the first year the first like few events i just had like my 20 mil bases glued to mdf that was painted green it's just kind of like just to get it on the table and show up and then when i multi-based them i was like i had anxiety because i thought it was going to be difficult and it was going to be like this big project and it took a couple days maybe two days to do my entire army. I was like, this is actually not so bad. And it looks cool. And it was way easier than I thought it would be. So I think, I think you're right. Like it's, it's such an easy way to improve the visual impact of your army. And you can really create a striking scene when you have like your entire army multi-based. Absolutely. I think, so I think that is one thing that Kings of War has that aesthetically puts it above other rank and flank type games is and it's one of the things that i always try to do with my multi bases is 
height variation because we've all had it where you know you have your warhammer army and everybody's ranked up they're all the exact same height so you really can't see the second rank back because they're covering each other up everybody's in perfect parallel rows with multi-basing you have the ability to stagger units so you can see you know maybe you only have four in the front but then you have three in the back or in the second rank rather so you can kind of see in between the the files and and see all of those different models because especially my dwarves if i'm going to spend you know five six plus hours per mini or however long i don't know i don't time it but if i spend hours painting a mini like you're going to be able to see his face yeah somewhere so i've you know and especially with models like dwarves that are typically very short the height variability lets you see those models and also makes your unit look a little more lively as opposed to just being a game piece it's it's a diorama. Yeah, I think with my rats, I really tried to do that with like the hordes. I had like I used slate to kind of create varying height levels and like basically had them funneling through various parts, pieces of terrain, and have them on top and coming down. Or I had like my tunnel runners ramping up off of one. So yeah, you get like it just creates a much more dynamic scene. And it, and again, like yeah, when you have miniatures you want to showcase, you can put things higher, lower, off to the side. Like kind of create that. You can guide the viewer to where you want them to, to look. Yeah, actually, that's a that's a really good point. You know, it's kind of a, a, a common thing in art that you want to, like, direct the, like, in, in, in 2D visual art or whatever, you want to direct the, the viewer's eye to a particular area. Well, you can kind of do that with multi-basing. And, like, one example I have of that where I actually intentionally did that was my um, Herneas's Ranger Regiment. And so there's a lot of stuff happening there's a lot of different miniatures and they're positioned in such a way where your eye is kind of guided all over the place and there's lots of like miniature scenes within the base so go ahead and look at that picture scroll on over to it and now that you're looking at it uh <laughs> there's like a guy in the front who's like holding up beer i've got a couple of guys that are kind of standing out front there's like a grouchy looking lady ranger there's a dude driving a cart who's drinking beer there's a guy just in the back of the cart by himself facing the wrong direction like leaning on the cart drinking beer there's a dude looking through a telescope at a lady dwarf's uh chest area it's just there's like a another lady dwarf like carrying around uh bowls of food or plates of food and cheese and bread and stuff. So it's just so many little bitty things and your eyes drawn all over the place. And if, you know, if I've seen people do stuff like that with Warhammer armies, but holy crap, individually basing models is not the way of the future. It's dumb. Agreed. And that just, when you're talking about that, it just reminded me of something I was going to say earlier. One of the coolest things I remember when you were, I think it was last year, when you're, or maybe the year before, coming up to a tournament and you were making the coffee bean bags for your units. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. we forgot to mention that, huh? And uh, it's like one of the, my favorite details of the army. It's like, you know, they're, they're coffee you know, entrepreneurs. They're bringing coffee to the masses of Panathor. And you actually went out and like you made, you know, burlap sacks of coffee. Yeah, I just got burlap sacks on Amazon or Michaels or wherever, and I made a little like woodblock stamp. I actually made it out of uh, XPS foam or whatever it's called, that pink foam, insulation foam, because I don't have woodblock carving tools. But yeah, I made a little stamp, and I just put paint on it, and I stamped the little bag. So it looks like you know a dwarf made these bags, and then I, I, I like artisanally locally roasted coffee because I'm a hipster, and um, 
I would source them out from these different places. And then I'd go to a tournament and I'd say, hey, this is from Athena Coffee Roasting out of uh, Oxford, Mississippi. Here you go. This is their Persephone brew or whatever. So it was a lot of fun. And sometimes I'd put dice in there. I think one tournament I had a bunch of random like Reaper minis just sitting around from like someone gave me. So I just threw those in the bags or it's just like a fun little favor. Like I always like when people give out little like um, mementos from the event. Like Paul Welsh did that when he came to Lone Wolf the last time I went. And so I've got these two little little vials that had like scotch in them and they're labeled like Potion of the Caterpillar. And then he had like a little burlap bag that they went in and like a scroll with like army fluff and stuff on it. So I just like stuff like that. I think that's cool. And I wanted to do something similar, but my own version of it actually fun fact for my orc army i'm going to record a a black metal demo and get it on cassette tape and pass it out to people so get ready for that world can't wait (laughs) kind of expand on the basing idea like display boards your dwarf display board is kind of nuts is that kind of your norm for armies or have they been escalating as display boards do so the first one i built ever for my old for the old dwarf army the old galdorak army was a picture frame and i glued on some of the tiles that i used for my bases a little bit of sand in some places sprayed it gray dry brushed it done the goblin one i had like a big giant santa statue like ruin and there was snow i made that Um, but again pretty basic then for the forces of nature army i went a little bananas i built a like two foot by two and a half, three foot wooden frame. And then it's about two feet tall, had like a a cliff plateau area and a waterfall and like a ruined statue of the green lady. And there's like a lake. I mean, this thing weighs 20, 30 pounds. It took up almost the entire back of my car. I had to have a cart to push it around. <laughs> like I had to buy a cart specifically to push the thing around events. That was as far as I've ever gone. So the Dwarf Army, uh, strangely enough, is actually dialed back a little bit. It's It comes apart, so it, it's actually in two separate pieces. There's like the frame base, and then the mountain part is separate. I actually added the, the flying helicopter thing. That was supposed to be debuted at Masters um, last year, but then you know the world came to an end, so... I wasn't able to go. But yeah, so this is me dialing it back a little bit. Yeah. And I think I think the Orc one is probably going to be dialed back a little bit more than that even, just because transporting all of that is a pain. I always feel like a jerk when I, I'm like, all right, Devlin, let's load the car up. And I'm like, all right, and here's my cart and my display board and the mountain that goes on top of it and my army. It's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's, like, it's almost like you're describing list building too, like an army, army list evolution. It's like, oh, it starts with like, these are just the units I have that I wanted to, you know, paint and then kind of escalates to like, oh, I wanted to add this piece that was a little bit better in this unit. And then it's like, oh, yeah, then I went like full power gamer one season. And then you're like, oh, right. Then I remembered why I play the game and like dial it back. Oh, yeah. Just- <laughs> so, so, so me and Ryan had sort of a display board off because like I had seen his, uh, his, ogre his ogre display board it was like a two by two foot thing he like custom laser cut all these castle bits and made this plaster mountain i mean thing weighed like 40 pounds and it was and all the models like slotted into specific places it was gorgeous i mean super cool and i was like you know what i'm gonna do that so i made the (laughs) that's where the nature one came from right and then i was like i can't do that ever again like i can't even transport this thing like it 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 is ridiculous yeah there comes a point where you just it can't go any farther. 
Yeah, so I think I'm going to dial it back again with the orcs. Um, the other thing is, and, and you don't think about it really, but orcs take up a lot of space. Yeah, I mean, heavy infantry bases, chariot legions, you know, I mean, they, they take up a lot of real estate. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to make a display board that actually fits all my models on it without any extra doodads. So we'll have to see. Um, yeah. I do have an idea for a piece of terrain that I want to include on it, but it's not going to be gigantic. It's not going to be super huge and ridiculous or anything. That's kind of like the problem I came up with my rats last year. I it's just, I, I think it's like 20 by 20 inches or 24 by 20 inches, and it's almost all units. So there's like you can't really do anything fancy. And so I had to like create layers and like a little mine shaft door to kind of like create something interesting because there's like the whole thing's covered in unit bases. Yeah, and like the dwarf one. It's large, but it's not, I don't think it's like ridiculous, but I wanted it intentionally made it to be big enough that it could fit like a 3000 point army. Mm -hmm. I knew there'd be times where I'd want to go with more units or, you know, for example, like when I went to the forge, the last one where they did the 2750, like if I had just built like a standard display board, I wouldn't have been able to fit all that stuff on there. So it was cool to be able to, you know, have it on there, but it'd be able to be spread out so you can actually see everything. All right, so to wrap up all the questions, we're going to do a little rapid-fire tools of the trade. Listen to what Billy's preferred weapons are to accomplish his goals. So what is the most important tool for painting? Wet palette and cheap synthetic brushes. Do you use paint additives? On occasion, sometimes. Depends. Not usually. Uh, What paint do you use? I mean, I use a lot of Vallejo stuff just because for a while that was what was available. Um, I still have a lot of Citadel stuff because, again, it's readily available. I've been wanting to try Scale 75, and our store is getting that stuff in. So, Pot or dropper bottle? What's your preference? Pots for washes, dropper bottles for paints. What brushes do you use? I just got into these. They're called – the brand is Saks, and they're Golden Taclon Synthetic Brushes, size number four round. It is perfect. So what's the most common size brush you paint with? Right now, it is this, the Zach's Golden Tech 4. four, And I use that for almost everything. And then just the finest details, I go in with the Windsor Newton number one. What type of palette do you use? I have the Redgrass Not Humongous Wet Palette. It's amazing. I have heard. What are your tips for maintaining your tools? If you're going to buy sable brushes, you need to have brush soap. You need to wash them correctly in clean water. You need to make sure to keep paint out of the ferrule and store them with the tips down. If you're going to be cool like me now and use these synthetic brushes, those are usually good tips to still do. But if you don't do them, you only wasted like a dollar instead of 13. Another thing is your wet palette, make sure you clean it out. I've heard people say to put like a drop of um, like Dawn soap in the bottom to keep it from getting moldy because obviously you have an enclosed wet thing. It's going to want to get mold. And then, uh, I don't know. I think those are the two big ones. In the, oh, airbrush. Wash your airbrush. Don't be a dingus. I hear people all the time say that their airbrush clogs up or it doesn't work or it stops working. It's because you didn't wash it. Wash your airbrush. Watch a video. Buy a sonic jewelry cleaner. Clean your airbrush. Figure it out. What are some of your favorite resources for painting and modeling? Well, I really like uh, Plug Time Dash 28. No, I'm just... Uh, I do like Dash 28. There's a lot of really good stuff on there. I like a lot of podcasts, so I've been listening a lot to Trapped Under Plastic, which is Miniac's podcast. I've been listening to uh, Paint Bravely, the podcast, which is Goobertown Hobbies podcast. Watch a ton of YouTube from those exact YouTubers and others. And also, I just Google stuff. 
Um, so if I need to learn how to paint, or like I just recently looked up how to make the use these water effects for Armada, just Google. There's probably a blog out there that'll tell you how to do it. Yeah, YouTube is amazing. It's like an incredible resource. You can get some step-by-step guides or like some first principles art theory guides for pretty much anything you want to do. It's pretty oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, just th- that's actually, I think they were talking about that on Trapped Under Plastic the other day. Just the fact that the internet exists now in its current form and there's so much there are so many resources for hobby on the internet. Like 12 year old me could not have fathomed like this kind of stuff. Like, you know, when I was young, it was like, you get the paint guide in the white dwarf and that's how you do it. You know what I mean? But now it's how to paint purple lizard men. And there are 68 videos on YouTube on how to do that. I think yeah, a couple of weeks ago, they mentioned like so much of the hobby is theoretical because your own personal experience is limited to what the, the armies and miniatures that you've painted and like your direct access to people is like your hobby community and there's only there are only so many armies and painters in that so it's like to do something that you know that your circle of friends or you haven't done before is isn't as a thought experiment until you can actually do it so having all these videos and tutorials available is is, is insane like like you said like the access to information i think i think that's partly why painting has kind of exponentially increased in quality over the last 10 15 years because you look at white dwarf and stuff from the 80s and 90s and you're like that's like golden demon awards from then it's like they wouldn't even like people wouldn't even look at them now absolutely the internet is just an invaluable resource you know there's there's so much stuff and we talk about we're in a golden age of miniatures we're also in a golden age of just hobby in general like i said it used to be just those games workshop those white dwarf articles but now every dick tom and harry's got a got a blog or a podcast or a youtube channel on how yeah. to do different things and the, they all approach them in different ways. Yeah. You know, there's some painting YouTubes that I don't like as much and there's some that I really enjoy. So there will be a channel or a multitude of channels for your style, but not everyone will be the one for you. So I think that's another cool thing. It's like if the way that one tutorial presents information doesn't quite click with you, there will be other tutorials out there to do the same thing from a slightly different perspective and a slightly different technique approach. Case in point, I know we were both just talking about Trapped Under Plastic, but for those of you who don't know Scott, the Miniature Maniac, and uh, Ninjan, it's his YouTube channel, um, they both approach painting in, like, totally different ways. And, like, it, it's it's wild to me because, like, Ninjan – John, I'm just going to call him John. John does a lot of, like, wet blending and oil paints, whereas Scott does a whole lot more, like, glazing and layering and stuff. And it's just really interesting to see, like, those two guys – who do a lot of like crossovers and obviously they have a podcast approach very similar things in completely different ways. So I think that's a great example of what we were just talking about. There's going to be a way to do what you want, given the amount of time and skill that you have out there. Just got to look and find it. So just to kind of wrap up, Billy, do you have any shout outs for anyone, anything out there? Shout out to Saks Golden Taclon number four brushes. Cause they're my, they're my new life. They're so incredible. It feels so much better to paint with a $1 brush than one that costs $14. Just because if you mess it up or something happens to it or whatever, you just don't care. And, and you're a hipster and you got to be counterculture. Exactly. I mean, I can buy 60 of these for, you know, uh, there's a school supply website. You get them for, it's like $4 for six of them or something crazy like that. That's awesome. Yeah. So Rob and Dan and I are going to put an order in at some point and just buy like 
hundreds of brushes and just never have to buy paintbrushes again. Other shoutouts, all the other mini painters whose stuff is really cool that I didn't talk about, I guess. You guys are amazing. Paint stuff. I just want to give a shout out to uh, Jesse Bilby and Keith Conroy for running the Sweaty Gigante UB tournament this past weekend to commemorate the passing of our friend and community member, Jesse Cornwell. The event was awesome. It was a great tribute to a great person. So I want to give a shout out to those guys for just commemorating uh, an important person to a lot of people out there. Wow. That's going to do us tonight. And until next time, keep counter charging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.